This week in the markets, U.S. tech shares blasted into orbit, and the precious metals moved higher on strong domestic economic growth figures. Well, welcome back, everyone, for another GoldSeek.com radio episode. Your host, Chris Waltzek, on this Season 14, Episode 693 show. Two more big guests this week. John Williams from Shadowstats has dire news, as usual, for our listeners on the economy. He's not impressed with the record blowout growth domestic figures. Hyperinflation is still lurking around the corner, and he agrees with us that the Fed will start a new rate cut cycle as soon as December of this year or January of next year. He claims that GDP is overstated by the understated inflation numbers and points out we've had $14 trillion in QE at some point turns into a tidal wave of hyperinflation. He's looking for not just $2,500 gold, add a zero there, folks, 25,000 plus in the event of a currency crisis. He thinks that it's inevitable. Cryptocurrencies are de facto alternatives to paper money. Bitcoin, Ethereum, and related assets could also participate in that big rally if and when a global currency endgame unfolds. Then the head of the Diehold Foundation, Dr. Douglas Vogt, returns in part two of our discussion. He's the author of several must-read tomes and outlines a warning that the sun has regular solar micronovas, or you might think of them as just little explosions, but they have sometimes a huge impact here. We discuss some of the ideas on how to keep your family safe in such an event. And just in case this sounds unbelievable, many folks are familiar with Dr. Robert Schock of Boston University. He's a world-renowned Egyptologist and geologist. He points out that these solar disruptions are likely the catastrophic event that led to the big changes approximately twelve to 13,000 years ago, which is right in line with Dr. Vogt's ideas. We'd like for you to call into the Q&A hotline, 641-715-3900, followed by extension number 5140-49. Again, that number, 641-715-3900, followed by extension number 5140-49. And Robert Ian wraps up the show with his latest must-hear report. Goldseek.com begins now with the market weather recap. Visibility virtually unlimited over the precious metal sector this week as investors picked up gold and related shares at discounted prices on better-than-expected U.S. economic growth figures. Stronger GDP oftentimes precedes price increases and subsequent inflation. Good news for the precious metals market. At Friday's closing bell, the indices finished up near $13, $12.90. Silver finished near break-even at 15 while the XAU shares also finished near break-even at 73 But black gold bucked the trend, flying to a new near six-month high of around 67 a barrel before settling off just 77 cents around 63.30, still about 50% up off the lows. Palladium picked up $49 at 14.47 an ounce, while platinum finished near break-even at 9.04 an ounce. The top story moving the markets clearly 
next week's FOMC. They meet to set the overnight lending rate. The current Fed funds futures at the CME indicate policymakers could begin a new round of QE within less than a year. One proviso, the U.S. dollar remains in a technically strong position due in part to the relative economic strength in the U.S. and its top trading partner, China, versus the EU. Bottom line, precious metals. Goldman Sachs noted this week that central bank demand for the yellow metal remains strong. Clearly, the powers that be see the stunning value of gold amid a global asset currency bubble. The fundamental picture for the metals remains very good. Signs of strong economic numbers and talk of inflation, all good news. I've noted recently the strength in U.S. and China. Of course, that's also good for the precious metals. However, again, that dollar could rally sharply here. I still prefer at least 10% holding in everyone's portfolio of the precious metals and at least 1% cryptos as a currency diversification method. Moving on to the Wall Street report, mostly sunny skies over the New York Stock Exchange. Again, this week with investors on better than expect domestic economic numbers, including solid export figures suggesting a strong manufacturing sector. By Friday's closing bell on Wall Street, the Dow was off just 16, near break-even at 26,543. Meanwhile, the S&P 500 flew 35 points higher, ending at 29,40, just shy of 3,000. But it was the NASDAQ that stole the show 150 points higher at 8150 slicing through 8000 resistance and now over 80% higher than the year 2000.com zenith. Meanwhile, robust first quarter GDP figures were much stronger than government forecasts, which were 2.3%. It soared to 3.2% on an annual basis. That's the best showing in about four or five years on the heels of record net import numbers. So despite the 35-day government shutdown, the USA continues to plug along as the global economic powerhouse with domestic manufacturers clearly benefiting from the tariffs imposed in Washington. Turning to shares in the news, Mad Money's Jim Cramer continues to read my Alpha Stocks newsletter. He's now recommending a stock candidate we've been suggesting now for well over six months. It's up almost 50% off the recent lows in the retail sector. If you haven't signed up, we'd like to have you get on board new candidates, new portfolio every week, scientifically crafted, not using hit or miss or tossing darts or tea leave reading and a solid portfolio and we have our expected portfolio returns also outlined each week statistical analysis for you plus kramer also likes the 3d digital scanners and related technologies and fields we think there's just so much to offer in the healthcare field orthodontic products u.s shares bottom line greed to fear index is still somewhat innocuous here it doesn't give us much of a reading either way. It's ambiguous. The technical view is also mixed because the Dow took a breather while the rest are soaring to new highs. Again, wouldn't be surprised at all to see an advance here on new records as soon as next week. But we'll have to see with the big Fed FOMC meeting next week. Coming up after the break, more Gold Seek Radio.
It's a pleasure to welcome back alternative economist John Williams to the show. He's helped investors for decades keep ahead of the trends in the markets with his alternative economic projections. Welcome back, John Williams. Hello, Chris. Thanks for having me. You have prepared and issued your latest report at Shadowstats. Well, this is um, an unusually um, comprehensive one because there are a number of factors that are facing us. Uh, I'll contend that we're heading in a new a new recession, one that effectively probably started in the uh, fourth quarter uh, of uh, 2018. When I say started, that was the peak in activity, so that uh, it may be November, but certainly the for the quarter would appear to be the peak in activity. And then you'll start to see quarterly contractions in the first quarter, second quarter of 2019. Um, expectations are the first quarter's uh, going to be on the plus side. The ranges are, um, you know, from 1.4% up to 2.8%, uh, I believe. And that's against 2.2% um, growth in the fourth quarter. Um, You've had a very difficult time here in economic reporting that's been heavily disrupted by the uh, government shutdown. A lot of key series such as retail sales, the the, the, the trade deficit, new orders for durable goods, that uh, they were, um, and 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 the the, the home home sales, the uh, construction series. Uh, all terribly uh, d d disrupted because of the, the the shutdown data was not gathered at the right time. Uh, been trying to piece it back together, and you've had all sorts of funny numbers. And uh, so people have made a lot of assumptions, and I think there'll be some downside surprises when everything's counted here. Uh, I believe, uh, given the, w the way the um, uh, Bureau of Economic Analysis operates, and they're the people who report the GDP. That they'll um, they'll target they always tend to target the consensus, and uh, the consensus is unusually broad at the moment. But when they're looking at something uh, lower or some downside revisions, they'll tend to go to the low side of consensus. So I think we'll uh, see in this uh, something that's uh, uh, for the first quarter currently below consensus, um, and that'll probably turn negative in the next several months of, of reporting. In fact, to come July, I think it's July 26th, uh, you'll get a revision, a benchmark revision, which I believe will take the fourth quarter growth down from its current 2.2% level, still positive. Um, I think by then you'll see the first quarter negative, and you'll also get the initial reporting of the second quarter, which I believe will be negative, which will give you the basis for a formal, a formal recession. The reason you're seeing the economy slow down is that the Federal Reserve has tightened um, monetary policy rather extensively in the last year or so, starting back in December of 2017. Every quarter, they're raising interest rates by a quarter of a percent. And although the Fed said, oh, that's you know a minimal amount, given the, where the market had been at low rates for such a long period of time, uh, from where they started that quarterly raising and effectively doubled interest rates. And uh, that and cutting back on systemic liquidity squeezed the consumer. Consumers, three-quarters of the economy. And uh, you're, beginning to, you're beginning to see those numbers falter um, before they shut down the government. And uh, there's nothing to indicate, really, that the consumer is doing any better than he was. 
So I think you're going to see that uh, as the number, numbers settle out here that you entered a recession. And where the Fed, the Fed recognizes that. Uh, they responded to the way the stock market was going at the end of the year, and they have their own internal for, forecast. If they saw a booming economy ahead, they, w- they wouldn't have uh, uh, intervened in their policy and said, oh, we're, we're, we're putting on hold any further interest rate increases this year. That being in 2019, they were looking to hike the rate, uh, the Fed funds rate, another quarter point for you know two to three quarters anyway. And now they're not looking at, at anything. So they've got an internal GDP forecast, I think, which shows it, which shows it down. And um, with that, you've got all sorts of distortions in the marketplace, very dangerous times. Uh, you've got people hyping how great the economy is and the stock market's at all-time highs, and that's all, all fine and dandy, but the economy is not as advertised, and the stock market will um, end up following what, uh, I believe, what the Fed's looking at here. Because the, uh, uh, if, if I'm right on where the economy is going here, not only is the Fed not going to be hiking rates for the rest of the year, but they're going to start easing again, probably by September. And as they start pulling back on interest rates, um, and maybe even go to quantitative easing, but as they start to lower interest rates, that will hit the dollar hard. Um, because you have a lot of foreign capital in the U.S. market, it'll flee for safer ground abroad. Um, That'll also be very inflationary in the United States as the dollar weakens. That spikes uh, commodity prices such as oil. We're already seeing some of that, uh, where um, as the inflation rises, um, all that uh, becomes negative for uh, the um, uh, for, for the bond market, and in the case of uh, the dollar here, also for the stock market because uh, people will be seeking safety outside the dollar. So that you, uh, as the dollar sinks, you get higher inflation, uh, particularly from the oil. The oil and uh, the oil prices have driven our uh, inflation rate for the last uh, several years, anyway. And um, that's um, that's very bullish for gold. And uh, that is uh, was I'm looking forward here. I'm not so hot on the domestic uh, stock or bond market. Uh, I'm not hot on the U.S. dollar. I think the U.S. dollar is going to take a hit. And uh, as a result, you've got a, system, a circumstance here that probably is very bullish for gold. But it's uh, it's something that's not anticipated. The Fed has been trying to get out of a bad situation it had back in 2008 with the banking system collapse. And that's why they were raising rates, but now they've had to pull back on that. So they, they don't have a stable circumstance. It's fraught with all sorts of uh, dangers here, but uh, just looking ahead in the near near future, I'm looking at a very unstable uh, uh, financial market, a weak dollar, and a rapidly slowing U.S. economy. How does the 50-year low on national employment, how does that factor into your work? Do you feel that this number is either artificial and or do you then expect for this type of uh, record figure to start to deteriorate and the feds will, you know, follow their typical playbook guide of lowering rates and increasing quantitative easing. The Fed has a pretty good sense of what's happening on, happening in the economy. And if you look at the unemployment rate, the headline unemployment rate, the, the, the U3 unemployment rate that's uh, indeed at multi-year lows. Uh, but that's in the context of um, 
some indications of labor market stress stress that are sort of at uh, highs that you see only during recessions. Um, back in um, you go back to the uh, oh my goodness, I'm trying to remember the the date they changed this. Oh, 1990, I think was the time when the excuse me, 1994. That's when um, NAFTA had been put in place, and they decided at that point in time to redefine um, the uh, unemployment numbers. And um, while the headline unemployment number, the guy that has stayed effectively the same in its definition, you have backup inflation numbers with people who um, have not been able to get get work in a while. They used to have... uh, uh, they used to count people who were uh, discouraged workers and uh, continue counting them until they got a job or uh, dropped out of the uh, labor force uh, completely for other reasons. And uh, what they redefined in uh, 1994 was that, well, you're only discouraged for a year. After that, we just don't count you. And uh, that had the effect of lowering the, uh, the secondary unemployment rate. Uh, which would have been uh, uh, would have been and indeed moved higher uh, in the uh, post after environment as uh, jobs were lost offshore and people just couldn't get work they, they couldn't get the type of jobs you're looking for and they retained uh, they uh, were ongoing discouraged workers instead of being uh, although they've been redefined out of existence by the government's numbers. I look at uh, estimating the uh, where things would be had they not made those changes in definition. And uh, where your um, headline unemployment rate right now, let's say, is around uh, 3%, per, 3%. Um, you're looking at uh, a broader rate of maybe 7%, which is the their headline number, and up closer to 20%. If you look at uh, what it would be if they uh, counted everyone who had uh, uh, been defined out of existence and uh, still would would be looking for a job, so the the un- the underlying empl- unemployment uh, big picture is uh, is not real strong, and where you see confirmation of that is in areas such as the popula the uh, employment to population ratio or the uh, uh, participation rate, which is the, um, the the ratio of people who are employed and unemployed to the population, and what you're seeing there are levels that are where we're at an all-time low, effectively, with the headline unemployment rate. That's a point in time where uh, historically, before you're going back before they redefine things here, uh, that you'd also be at a, an all-time high with the participation rate or with the uh, employment-to-population ratio. What we're seeing are are those numbers off historic lows. They're at levels that are much more consistent with a, an ongoing recession and with uh, unemployment uh, quite high. And if you work out the numbers, what you'll see is that it's it, it, those are numbers that involve the population. And the, the issue here is that um, the, uh, the, the reason you're seeing those numbers out of whack is that you have a um, higher portion of the population, which is now counted as uh, unemployed in the broader unemployment measure. And you, you work that versus mine, you'll find that my, my estimate pretty much accounts for why you have this dichotomy between 
what used to be uh, consistent numbers, the, the unemployment measure versus the um, participation rate in, in terms of where you were in the cycle and why you're not seeing it now, and that's because you have a lot of people who are no longer being counted in the, uh, in the broad uh, unemployment picture. If you're expecting an economic downturn, um, investors could be caught flat-footed, particularly U.S. equities investors. What do you see as the go-to market when this starts to unfold? Uh, my forecasts on the stock market traditionally have not been um, uh, stellar. I can tell you where the general pressures are going to be. Uh, business conditions are going to be good. Earnings are they're not going to. Business conditions are not going to be good. Earnings are not going to be good. Um, and then you get all sorts of uh, games played with the Fed, where they cut rates and the games. Pe- people come in and manipulate the markets. Uh, you have you, you have other problems with the uh, system here, which get hurt by a um, recession. Very specifically, the budget deficit and uh, the government's ability to cover uh, its its own finances. And uh, there you have risks that tend to threaten long-term financial stability, inflation, and again, areas that would tend to uh, make you not want to be in the dollar or uh, have some kind of uh, an investment that would be stable against uh, the real purchasing power of the dollar, and that brings you back to the precious metals. Um, It is... uh, Right now, the, the inflation numbers are not real. They're about, they're about as real as the, the the broad unemployment rate. But something here you might find of interest. Um, the government started redefining inflation back in the 1980s um, with the effect of lowering the rate of inflation through a number of definitions of how uh, products were surveyed or defi- how the prices were defined or the quality was defined. And uh, we right now have headline inflation um, you're running uh, somewhat over 2%. If you look at inflation the way it used to be before they started playing games with us, uh, you'd be up closer to 10%. Now, that, that's, a, that's a big difference. And um, the reason the government made these changes, and they're very open about it, discussed before Congress, uh, Greenspan was backing it. Uh, at the time, it's been during, back during the, the uh, Clinton administration. Um the idea was that, uh, well, inflation uh, really is wrong at, 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 at the number they were using. Um, it overstates inflation, and if only we could make the number right, um, which would be lower, a lower inflation, that would cost uh, cost us less and help narrow the budget deficit for areas of expense such as cost of living adjustments for people on Social Security or federal pensions. And uh, wrong was a measure of uh, bailed out um, corporations like General Motors. The Fed uh, bought AIG, the largest insurance company in the world. They did everything they could to keep the system from from, from crashing. And um, the, the biggest factor was those uh, mortgage-backed securities that uh, uh, brought uh, effectively a number of banks to bankruptcy. They, the, the, the system was failing. Now, the, uh, what the uh, Fed did there was they introduced quantitative easing, very very creative, and it worked to stabilize the banks. Because what the Fed did was they bought up 
trillion, literally uh, about $5 trillion worth of uh, mortgage-backed securities in U.S. treasuries from the, from the banking system. That flooded the banking system with cash. Now, normally the, when the Fed is trying to um, stimulate the economy or stimulate the money supply, what they'll do is they'll buy um, treasuries from the banking system. That gives the banks cash. And the banks then lend that out, and with a multiplier effect with the reserve balances, that expands the money supply and helps to expand the economy. What they did here, had had it been a parallel, okay, we'll just take this cash and put it into the system, you, you would have had a hyperinflation. What they did instead was they told the banks they couldn't lend it back out into the system, but had to had to lend it back to the bank, to the Federal Reserve Bank, the, the central bank, and the central bank would pay them interest on their uh, excess reserves. So the Fed created the cash for them, borrowed the cash back from them, paid them interest on it, and kept the banking system afloat. Problem was that uh, they didn't allow for the normal course of uh, uh, lending and, and, and economic recovery. The, the concentration was saving the banks and not the, not the uh, economy, per se. So the average guy uh, still has problems uh, getting uh, uh, mortgages. The main show contend Main Street USA never saw much of an economic recovery. You saw a recovery on on uh, on Wall Street, but uh, you look at major economic sectors such as manufacturing, U.S. manufacturing, biggest portion of the biggest sector of the U.S. economy, never recovered. Uh, this is as reported by the by the Federal Reserve. Uh, the, the way they measure the economy, or when using uh, economic terms. But you, when you let's say you have a peak of economic activity, and you determine that because then the economy starts to slow down, as it turns off its peak, which I think happened here in the fourth quarter, that's a recession. Uh, it's a recession until you hit a trough. Then uh, you rally off the trough, and 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 the economy recovers until it gets to its pre-recession high. It's recovering until it recovers the the prior high, and then once it goes beyond the prior high, which usually it does. That's that's called economic expansion. Well, you look at um, industrial production, and that's a particularly interesting series, because with the industrial production and the dominant manufacturing sector there, you have a hundred years of history. Um, it's the longest published uh, major U.S. economic indicator around. Never in the hundred in the hundred year history have the series have you had what's now 135 consecutive months of economic non-expansion. This is longer than we've seen with the Great Depression um, or any, any other downturn in economic history in the last last century. Um, so that, that's why some people are not, uh, uh, not, not sensing that there's a really strong economy here. Guess what? The construction sector is seeing the same thing. The housing market, uh, no recovery there. Same thing. Same, the, the, the many, many of the measures there, the, the, the home sales, the uh, uh, housing, housing starts, they're down 50% from their, their, their pre-recession peak. Industrial production is down about 4%. And you take aggregate production, it is up uh, 5 or 6% because of uh, um, a boom in the oil industry, which is one positive sector in, in, the, in the production area. But what uh, makes you wonder about it a little bit is that if you look at the GDP, uh, the formal measure, the and this is the this is the headline number on the economy and the one that the Fed likes to work with, that's up uh, 19.2% from its uh, pre-recession low. But there's nothing else that's up that much. I, I don't care what you can look at the employment numbers, 
retail sales. I mean, there there are all, there are a number of measures that are above their pre-recession highs, but nothing close to what's being reported for the for the GDP. So um, I'm very suspect of the GDP, and where that where that comes into play is uh, is in how they define the inflation, because um, right now they're understating the GDP by about two percentage points. Uh, and in terms of its, uh, the underlying inflation, the implicit price deflation, or GDP inflation, they're understating that by about two percentage points, which means it's artificially adding about two percentage points to the real growth, the inflation-adjusted growth. And the difference that makes is that if you look at it um, as though it, they, they hadn't understated inflation, it takes on the same pattern that you see in uh, manufacturing. Plunge, some recovery, but you know economic expansion. I mean, there are areas that have expanded, and uh, that's they're generally tied to the uh, fi- financial markets. The economy's fine and recovering, but he said it wasn't. One of the areas that you've covered closely, inflation, and in particular, say, economic history and just how inflation has maybe crafted, you know, the way we look back at just some of the deluges and implosions we've seen in the markets seem to follow runaway prices and even stagflation, hyperinflation. Some people have tried to argue if we ignore the continental back in the 1700s, and then again if we ignore the Civil War and the fallout there, we've never really experienced a hyperinflation in the United States. Can you outline a plausible scenario where that might actually come to pass? Because, you know, usually it's what people are least expecting that oftentimes occurs in the economy. Well, it is, uh, again, just uh, as a quick point, if you look at the Again, in the, my current newsletter, I've got a plot of inflation back to the 1600s um, in, in, the, in um, the Americas and in, into in the United States after it's created. And, and what you'll find is that you generally get a, some spike in inflation around wars. You had some spike in inflation around the California gold rushes. New gold got pumped into the economy. But those, you know, it's up and down, and inflation effectively is flat over time until the Fed was founded and then you start to see a little bit pick up in the early 1900s not bad then in uh, Roosevelt takes us off the gold standard domestic uh, gold standard it starts then to accelerate a little bit and Nixon takes us off the uh, uh, he closes the gold window and all of a sudden really starts to take off and that's I mean that, that's that's just with the headline inflation then if you look um, in the uh, early 80s, when the government starts playing with the inflation rate to keep it down, you see then the inflation sort of straight is a straight line. But the way it would have been is taken up uh, exponentially, and so, do, so does gold. So gold tends to measure, reflect um, what, what people are actually experiencing with their, their, their purchasing power. That, that's worked out consistently over now uh, centuries. And, I mean, you can still buy a loaf of bread Today, for the same amount of bulge you could buy it for back in ancient Rome. Same thing with silver. Um, it's, a, it's a store of wealth. As a store of wealth, if you don't have any inflation, that's, <clears throat> that's fine. You've got, you've got all sorts of fine investments that you can make. But if you're in a highly inflationary society, and here, here's what we're saying is that, number one, it's, there really is underlying inflation here. It's just not being fully reported. Uh, but, you, but, but going forward... Uh, we're in a circumstance 
where the federal government is effectively insolvent. Uh, now, in order to not have a hyperinflation in the United States, what has to be done is uh, that the system has to be brought into balance between what the government's committed to spend over the next 70 years, let's say, in terms of Medicare and Social Security. That's, that stuff's already established. Uh, they've worked out the numbers on it. In order to cover what we need to cover today, uh, I mean, what we're, what we're committed to, looking at the hard numbers that are deflated for inflation, cost of money, we, we need $100 trillion in place today for the federal government. We don't have that. Now, so that's either, as Greenspan once suggested, if the economy is, uh, if <clears throat> um, you don't have to worry about the U.S. ever defaulting on its, on its debt because everything it owes is in dollars and we can always print as many dollars as we want. Um, that That is one solution going forward, but that creates a hyperinflation and the dollar becomes worthless. Ideally, you want to have the system in fiscal balance and, and, and be able to cover your expenses and your revenues and somewhat in balance over time. I mean, different things you can adjust for to uh, uh, try and uh, uh, you know, make up for unusual unusual times. But we're right now far out of balance. Um, again, you have uh, our Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. You've got our Federal Reserve Chairman Powell, both describing the, the Treasury's fiscal condition as not sustainable. Uh, the government just put out its financial report. The U.S. Treasury did. It's non-sustainable. We have to make these changes. So, what do you do? How do you? What changes do you have to make? Well, basically, you ha- have to bring the uh, Medicare and Social Security obligations into in balance uh, against with the revenues. And and the, the the way you do that is that you raise the taxes, you raise the cash flowing in, and you reduce the expenses, what you put out. So you're reducing the benefits and you're increasing the taxes, and um, I challenge you to find more than two or three politicians that are willing to do that right now in Washington. They have to act now. The, the longer they wait, the more expensive it gets, and I just don't see uh, the political will to do it. They'll keep pushing it off into the future. The more they push it off into the future, the worse the problem gets. And eventually, you either get a very severe um uh, uh, realignment of taxes and revenues and what people are getting out of the system, or as uh, Greenspan suggested, yep, you just uh, we just print the money as we need it, and if you print the number money as you need it, that's where you get the hyperinflation, and that's that's where we're headed if the system can't be brought into balance. I hope it can be brought into balance. It has to be brought into balance for everyone's good, because you really don't want to see what happens here if we end up in a hyperinflation. Well, not to mention, I mean, eventually the system will right itself. It's as inevitable as a ship, if you will, if you want to use the Titanic analogy. But, I mean, eventually it must right or it must capsize. And I think our officials have no intention on allowing the ship to capsize. So the only means left at their disposal is to try to keep printing and quantitative easing. So that really leads, I think, to the key takeaway 
If the currencies of the world, let's ignore cryptos, which I believe are now uh, direct parallel competitors uh, with fiat money, but that's really a completely different discussion for a different day. But let's just assume that the fiat money of the world was reevaluated to the more traditional metric of gold, gold and silver as the base money supply. Can you give us a guesstimate, a back-of-the-envelope idea of just how high gold and or silver might have to be priced for the fiat money to meet its current obligations? Well, it's, uh, it, it all depends on uh, you know, how, how far down the road it goes before they, uh, they, 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 they try to do something. I can tell you that the, let me put it this way, we've already had a hyperinflation uh, although people haven't seen it because it's been over a period of time. Again, if you if you um, took a hundred dollars in uh, in gold back in 1900 and a hundred dollars in U.S. dollar bills, forget any gold backing, but just the the, the dollar per se, um, and looked at them today, you could. And, and and put it back in terms of the value of 1900 and where you are today, gold would still be worth 100 bucks, but the dollar would be worth four cents. So let's say that's 25 times to the dollar times 100. So it'd be uh, to suggest gold would be around 2,500 dollars. Oh my goodness, that's uh, my my point here is it's 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 all relative to how how cheap the uh, the dollar is going. The gold retains the same the same purchasing power that it had back, and um, it retains that hundred dollars of purchasing power of 1900, as opposed to the four cents that the um, that the dollar has. It's just a matter of how far over time you want to go. It's a, an ounce of gold is an ounce of gold, and it'll buy the same thing uh, today as it did a thousand years ago. Yeah, you've done a very good job giving us a, an overview of just how, you know, the traditional suit for a business person, if you will, maybe we should say a toga back in the times Roman period there. I mean, essentially a suit, approximately one ounce of gold even today. That's the kind of the standard. And are there any other markets you're concerned about? I mean, we've heard talk of an echo bubble, at least regionally here in the United States on real estate. There are some frothy looking numbers if we take a look at the Case-Shiller indexes in particular for individual cities. Any comments there? Well, real estate has a, uh, a basic economic demand behind it, but it's also uh, um, uh, a real asset and of, uh, of limited supply. Um, you know, if you get real high um, high demand in certain areas, the prices will go up on a relative basis. But um, again, it's uh, it's uh, generally always a very good uh, uh, hedge against inflation. Just lacks the um, uh, portability and the liquidity of gold under certain circumstances. Um, it is uh, in terms of how it gets affected by the economy. I think the economy here is going to get a lot worse. Uh, so that might tend to bring down the demand some, might bring, tend to bring, bring prices down some, um, and indeed you can get highly inflated prices even there. But over time, there's a, a real value that is uh, re realizable. It's not going 
it's not going from a hundred dollars to four cents. Um, and it, and depending upon how the economy is going, you'll go around a you know, certain constant constant value in terms of purchasing power. Um, I have uh, real estate is one other area that I would look to have money in, as long as you're not worried about uh, uh, liquidity of times get get tight. It will retain its value. And as far as the um, the global equities markets, do you feel that since you know we've been the best game in town, our U.S. shares market, do you think that will change and folks should be looking abroad? Frankly, I would uh, I, I would tend to avoid the uh, equity markets or that that I'd have as my my pocket gambling money. I mean, you can always make uh, uh, good money in certain deals in crazy circumstances and over time i mean certainly stocks uh, have have been uh, 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 somewhat of a hedge in inflation as well not as good as gold um, the uh, it it's um, the, the problem is that uh, you have um, fiat currencies around the world uh so that there there may be some global issues here in terms of of the um, the paper money and some relative currency values I still like the Swiss franc, even though they don't have the backing they had. With so few people positioned in gold today, I mean, in the safe haven assets, you know, the risk on trade remains the trade of the day. In that type of scenario, and with so many people up to their eyeballs in debt, several reports now coming from the Fed itself that very few families in the United States don't even have $1,000 in cash available for emergencies, let alone any money to invest in precious metals. Do you see this as a socioeconomic disaster setting up here, or will our policymakers somehow come in and resolve this at the last minute? Well, a lot of it's been self-created by our policymakers. I mean, what what they did in redefining inflation was that they guaranteed impoverishment of people who were uh, living on social security they 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 cut the they 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 cut the uh, cost of living adjustments very very deliberately um by by percentage points from where they should have been and they um nobody, nobody seems to complain about it i mean if you happen to live on social security uh, i hear a lot of complaints about it but it's um uh, this was a deliberate move by the government to um help reduce its uh, budget deficit without having to, um, in theory, raise taxes. It would have been much more honest just to raise taxes and people knew what were happen- paying, what they were paying and uh, that they were not uh, being uh, cheated out of um, uh, income adjustment because they're understating the actual inflation rate. And as we wrap up today, can you tell people more, please, about what they can expect when they bookmark shadow stats and all of your latest reports and material? Shadow Stats uh, is, is a subscription service in terms of uh, my publishing a regular or somewhat evolving um, newsletter, series of newsletters um, on, on what's happening in the current economic uh, scene. Uh, I also have on my website uh, a, a page, you know, shadowstats.com, but the, 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 the uh, site page has right in the upper right-hand corner a big column. It's called a daily update. And uh, there I put in the uh, analysis whenever there's a new economic release. And I'll give you my insights because what I look at here is not necessarily what you get in the uh, the, the, the headline press. And um, along with stories that are in the 
in the in the newsletters. You don't have to subscribe to the newsletters to see that, but um, we, are, we do, always do welcome uh, uh, new, new subscribers. And uh, uh, the, my, the subscription service runs uh, $175 a year, $89 for six months. It's certainly a unique service. There's nothing like it online. John Williams, always a pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Pleasure talking to you. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. Goldseek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure, immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind. Markets, the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology. Vault Chain. Gold and silver are 100% redeemable through one gold. For physical precious metals delivered to customers' doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs. As a special offer and for a limited time only, One Gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums. OneGold.com is secure and accessible 24-7 on any device, offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMax products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember OneGold. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. It's just a real pleasure to welcome Douglas Vogt, who has a truly uncanny knack for revealing anomalies. I'd like to give folks just a quick synopsis of what, having gone over all your videos, some of the key takeaways. What I've been able to gather here, you believe that we have a, a son that approximately every 12,000 years has what appears to be a micro nova where projectile like not just plasma it rains all over our solar system there's evidence you've found on the moon you've proven there's evidence all over this earth that you've actually uncovered like an archaeologist or a paleontologist. This seems to resolve unexplained anomalies that uh, current mainstream theories just can't explain. Um, have you considered the fact that if it were to strike the 12 hour later impact that you referred to, the globules and the rest of the uh, crust that leaves the sun, if it were to strike a different part of the earth, might it not cause the reversal? The reversal and the reason why the earth's rotation Occurs has to do with the magnetic field. In in video series four, part F and G. Yeah, you cover that and resolve more anomalies there, proving why we don't have a solid iron core. Right. Yeah, no, it's there's like five good reasons why it, it cannot be. And I, I'm now beginning to believe the the government wanted you to think the wrong thing, so you cannot figure out what's really going on. They do know it's it's a cycle that runs through time. Uh, the I don't know. <laughs> I think it's 
they're scared that anybody should know this stuff because the main job of all governments is to control you. But if you find out that this thing's going to happen in 27 and a half years, the exact number of years between the reversals, I found that coded number in 1994 in the Torah. The Torah actually gives an exact month, the day, and the year, and it's dead center for when the next Gleisberg cycle is going to be. And, and, and one of the most interesting aspects of your work are the, is the cycle's work, where you bring together the Gleisberg cycle and all of the smaller cycles within the major cycles. By the way, I, I was also the first one in, in 2,600 years that found the real Mount Sinai. You'll see some of the altars uh, that Moses mentions in Exodus. On the website, on uh, Diehold Foundation's website, you'll, you'll see the expeditions, the two or three I've done there. Okay, we start to see activity within the sun that indicates, my goodness, we're going to likely have a nova next year. And, and by the way, it's going to hit the northern hemisphere. That's, that will be the brunt of the impact. Could you not perhaps find deep caverns within Peru, very high altitude of Peru, and get deep down in a cavern there and sort of wait this out? Is there any refuge on Earth? There's a way of figuring out what side of the Earth is going to be facing when the sun novas. And that's, I'm still doing the script for part five of series four, which says there's a hardware and there's a hard way and there's an easy way to survive this event. The hard way would be actually building something that resembled a pyramid because you've got an ocean, the Pacific Ocean, rushing over you if you're here in the uh, Americas. But you want to be within 510 or no more than 15 degrees north or south of the equator. And because that's the first part that's going to melt, the whole Earth is going to be covered with snow uh, for at least 20 or 30 years and it, until the sun starts producing enough heat infrared heat that'll start melting stuff and it'll actually give you light as we know it. Um, after the Nova, it's skewed really heavily to the ultraviolet. So that doesn't produce really any heat. It just, you know, it just bakes the place. And well, for good reason, we'll have a, a thick cloud cover over us, which is going to be dumping snow on us for at least 40 years. You do realize you've just resolved another one of the greatest riddles and enigmas in Egyptology. I, I assume that the pyramids were the, one of the few man-made objects to probably get through at least one or two of these cycles. It's just a hypothesis, but one would notice that on the main pyramid, it's high enough to where the shells were not found. The ocean level did not reach, which would A, shield one from the solar impact, and B, the flood that occurred afterwards. Well, last time it would have been the Indian Ocean rushing over the thing. They, they have a, a legend, um, the Egyptians, of how, who built the first pyramid, the big one. And it was that a king had a dream that the world was going to be destroyed, so he built this pyramid to ho hold all of man's known knowledge. And that was the legend of, of the Great Pyramid of Giza. And uh, it's probably closer to the truth than what we are taught let's say 28, 30 years from now, whenever we come to the conclusion that we'll have another Nova-like event with our sun, we might have 10 billion, 20 billion people on Earth. The numbers are a little disheartening on how you protect the populace. Is there a solution for the bulk of folks? I wish there was. I, I believe in telling people the truth because they've been lied to for so many years and thousands of years that 
it's about time you at least know the, the truth and, and why we're in the position we're in. By the way, we didn't really finish the, the, how to save yourself. One is with your pyramid. The other one would be a cave if it was made in solid granite or where there's no faults inside the mountain where you're building this cave. It should be at least 2,000 feet up to avoid some of this ocean water rushing over the place. So something's going to be built either in, in northern part of Brazil or in Venezuela. Or Peru, as I mentioned. Pichu is like 10,000 feet up. Built it up there. The next obvious thought is Shangri-La, of course, northern India. The Himalayas, a safe haven? It is. As a geologist, I'll tell you, every place you have a mountain range, you have a fault. Those mountains were created because there's a fault underneath, either a seduction fault or a slip fault, that created that mountain range. So you're going to have a lot of shaking. There's no guarantee that your little cave is going to be surviving. And it should have a, a, a watertight door or maybe even airtight door to, well, to be one and the same because of the pressures involved here, especially if, if the ocean may, reaches you. I don't think the Atlantic Ocean is going to reach China. It's not that big an ocean, and I don't think it's going to reach it. But I think it's going to have a horrible uh, ice age because the jet stream is going to be in reverse direction. They're going to get clobbered. Shift gears now to just one more reason why SpaceX, Elon Musk, and the NASA drive to perhaps have a colony on Mars. I mean, clearly Mars is further away from the sun, and that would certainly reduce any shotgun-like crust from the sun. The radiation levels would increase dramatically, perhaps warming the surface of Mars. I'd like your thoughts on Mars as a potential uh, safe haven. Whoever was living on Mars, whatever society was there, they moved to the next closest planet in that had water and uh, was warm enough. And when the sun novas, supposedly the cosmic rays come a few minutes after you see the light from the sun. So everything on the sun side when it novas is going to get a blast of cosmic rays and gamma rays, which altered the DNA. And that's why you have the creation of new species immediately after a geomagnetic reversal. Okay, now I do have a question for you. Why we still have such fauna on flat area is Africa, as well as perhaps bison in North America and things of that nature. The ocean and waters going over the continent at the time of the Nova saves the plants. The fauna, elephants, giraffes. I mean, I, I can understand how smaller creatures can can hide in a cave, but elephants and giraffes, that's an anomaly we've got to resolve. That's why the Americas lost 57 larger species. All the larger species we lost, they were caught out in the open when the dust shell hit. And Is it possible that on some of these novas, there might not be the pole reversal? And the only reason why I toss this anomaly out there, might that explain why some of the larger fauna that we see in India and Africa have remained there for such an extensive period of time? It may be because they were housed in caves, and they did find caves in Siberia with a whole bunch of different animals in the cave. may have intuitively gone there. But excellent question. I want to clarify one thing. All stars nova at the exact same time. Remember how I found the clock cycle was I found six blank periods in space where no stars were visible, and four of the six were 12,068 light years apart. The stars are there when they nova. They're all noving at the exact same time. 
and the dust shell hides them if they're a small or, or average-sized star. V838 monocretuses are really a big star, so we had no problem seeing it when it blew 24,000 years ago. There's only two ways to describe the universe. Either matter is the dominant thing in the universe, which is what we inherited from Aristotle and the Church, and the only other way is that its information creates the matter world we're in. What I've done is created a foundation philosophy that everything else would be based on. Just like your matter theory of existence, there's a whole bunch of science that's really reached its dead ends based on that foundation philosophy, which I'm here to destroy. You've also just added further evidence in support of the Dr. Kurt Goodell and all of his incompleteness theorems, Alan Turing's work in incompleteness. Just for our listeners, very quickly here, this is obviously just a brief overview, back of the envelope. If we live in an information-based universe, that proves what many of the physicists and mathematicians of the last century were struggling with, the fact that systems are de facto incomplete. They must have an external governing source. A lot of big name names in physics knew something was wrong with what they were taught and teaching. Many of them flat out said, it looks like the universe is the product of waveforms, or everything is, is waves. Uh, one of my friends who's a PhD in physics, uh, Owen Redcliffe, when he saw my, my book, he said, you know, Doug, you found the, the philosophy that the string theorists have been looking for. Basically, what I've discovered and what I explain is it shows that string theory is partially right and partially wrong, and quantum mechanics is partially right and partially wrong. The event, I don't know if eventually they would get to the fact that, yes, the universe is just information. It almost got to that point now, but it's... There's, as far as I can tell, I'm still only the very first person who actually created and explained things as hard as what is light, what is magnetism, what is gravity, which they couldn't do. Well, I would propose the reason why you've unified the macro with the micro universe at the quantum level, of course, with our universe. The system is based on one that is essentially about forcing the facts to your preconceived theories, instead of building one's theories and hypotheses upon the facts. And I'd propose that's what the um, Diehold Foundation has done so well here, by just saying, look, let's look at the observations and build our hypotheses around it. You say Aristotelians, should they be preparing for the next 20, 30 years? No, you live your life. This is a situation where Government, big government, is the only way you're going to be able to find a way to survive this thing. And I'll, I'll put it into part five of series four, which I'm still doing. I'm hoping to finish it off today and then maybe do the filming tonight or tomorrow and, and then put it up. It'll be a three parts. The first part is going to be the hard way of surviving this thing and what to look out for. And the second part will be the easy way. It's codes and clues that are in Deuteronomy that Moses left. Now, those who are atheists say, wait a minute, religion? You have to look at it differently. You have to look at it like a man who had the technology, access to a technology that was literally tens of millions of years more advanced than us. That's what was in that cave that Abraham bought. And that's what was really going on. Fast radio bursts. 
I believe we found holographic information that completely proves everything that you were writing about 40 years ago. It's a message from beyond, and it uses a language. I think you'll find it interesting because it corroborates your theories. He based the Hebrew language, or they based the Hebrew language, on an ancient, extremely advanced civilization. Back to survival. It's, it's a question of government doing it. And it's going to be an effort that's going to be like the old Manhattan Project during World War II. The, the, the only issue is, is government brave enough or will they do it and try not to panic the people? Or will people just know it because of my videos and others copying me, what I'm saying? My purpose of doing them is basically to make sure somebody survived this thing. This is when a species and man can become extinct. And that's the reason why I'm doing that. I've been trying to tell people the last 42 years. I've been researching this subject for 50 years. Even when I was still in college, I was researching this stuff. You have to understand, this is not something a few people or even a couple of thousand people can do to survive it. Maybe drilling caves in, like I said, 10 or 15 degrees north or south of the equator might do it, but not on the Pacific side. You'll just get drowned. There's just no way you can survive it there. Brazil, Venezuela, that area is about the best choice. Couldn't you seal it like a deep-sea submarine, though? It's possible people in a sub, if they place themselves around uh, the western Pacific, that Pacific's going to be rushing eastward towards the Americas, now, I don't know how many for how many hours until it finally goes in the other direction. They get tossed around pretty badly. Tether, that's the ground, going up what, 50, 60, 100,000 feet up. Now, when the Earth stops its rotation... You can't shadow the Earth, in other words? Hopefully you'll know where to land. If there's risk to that. It's better actually being on the planet. Building the right structures, but big. What about a sealed Earth ship? Some ships could make it uh, if they're at least not on the side of the on the side of the sun that Novus. If they're not on that side on the ocean, it's possible. But the thing may they may wind up finding themselves in the middle of the Gobi Desert. Do you suppose that the biblical Noah may have actually traversed one of these events? The idea that um, a Noah put animals in something on a ship is beginning to look really good. By the way, the reason why they think they found it on Mount Ararat in Turkey, remember how I told you that the Earth rotated then. So the Indian Ocean rushed in a westward direction. Any ships there would have been picked up, and he wound up getting stuck on Mount. How many thousands of feet up they think they found it? But the point is, is... That gives you an idea how high the wave was. I think it was like 5,000 foot up. They think, they think they found the remains of a wooden ship. The only thing you can do, and I've said it on the videos also, tell as many people as you can, but get yourself educated, watch some of the videos to get to so unknowledgeable. If we got 10 to 20% of the American population to know it, then we can get Congress and the Senate to have hearings and force them to say what they know. Because if it's no longer a secret, then there's no point in hiding it any longer. A friend of mine, Ben Davidson, 
of suspiciousobservers.org, he actually thinks the CIA is trying to release this stuff a piece at a time because they don't want their fingerprints on it, but they want the information out. And I'd just like to add one quick thing here. Dr. Robert Schock of Boston University, the world-renowned geologist slash Egyptologist, has not only confirmed Dr. Vogt's work here today, but he has proposed a parallel theory. He believes it's just plasma that causes these events. And I believe the Diehold Foundation figured it out maybe 20 years ahead of anyone else. I'm going to do videos on volumes 1, 2, and 3 on decoding the Hebrew scriptures. And I, you'll, you'll, at least, you'll know why Abraham bought that cave and what Moses did. Uh, and you'll actually see the, uh, the whole Exodus story and everything they, I found that, that Moses describes. Was, he's a, he wasn't a fictional character. Fictional characters do not leave physical evidence behind. Simple as that. Absolutely. And folks, if you haven't seen these videos, bookmark the Die Hold Foundation. Try one or two. Try the, especially the first few. And you'll be, as, I promise you, you'll be as hooked as I am. blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. GoldSeek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure, immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind Markets, the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology. Vault Chain. Gold and silver are 100% redeemable through one gold. For physical precious metals delivered to customers' doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs. As a special offer and for a limited time only, one gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums. OneGold.com is secure and accessible 24-7 on any device, offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember OneGold. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. Investment advice. This is Robert Ian with GoldSeek.com Radio. An article this week on BusinessInsider.com disclosed that more than 6,100 stores are closing in 2019 as what they call the retail apocalypse drags on. According to the article, more than 6,100 stores are expected to close in 2019. Office Depot is closing 50 stores under its namesake and Office Max banners in 2019. Charlotte Roos, Family Dollar, Abercrombie & Fitch, and Chico's recently announced more than 1,100 store closures 
in a span of 24 hours. Payless has said it plans to close all of its 2,500 stores in what could be the single largest retail liquidation in history. On the surface, this sounds like significant economic upheaval. And for many, it will be. However, change continues to transform and realign many parts of the economy. After reading this article, which didn't really offer any economic analysis, I clicked over to the website of the National Retail Federation, who on their homepage described the metrics of what is actually happening in retail. Right at the top, they state, Retail is undergoing an enormous transformation, leaving many asking, what's the future of retail? The narrative that the industry is struggling, dying, or even suffering a retail apocalypse inaccurately depicts what is really happening. This is an excellent example of crisis communication management. Reading further, it explains that retail is growing. There's over 1 million retail establishments across the U.S., and retail sales have grown almost 4% annually since 2010. It goes on to state that it's not in-store versus online, that it's all retail. And of the top 50 online retailers, nearly all operate stores. Industry-wide, online sales make up 10% of all retail sales. According to other stats, they say that 2018 will have seen a net growth of 2,000 stores, and then explained it makes headlines when well-known retailers close stores, but according to research from IHL Group, For every retailer closing stores in 2018, two are opening stores. And there will be a net increase of roughly 2,000 stores for 2018. The the report also expects stores to be involved in 81% of all retail sales in 2021. And something called the halo effect happens because it is reported that opening a new store increases traffic to that retailer's website by an average of 37% and drives up share of web traffic within that market by 27%. A Forbes article in November of 2018 by Gia Wirtz concluded by saying that multi-channel is the new normal. She says one of the interesting dichotomies of the current retail model is that despite their alarming closure rates, brick-and-mortar stores still play a key role in the sales process. Nevertheless, it has transitioned from the primary point of sales to being part of a broader retail strategy. Instead of a single touchpoint for consumers, The trends in retail over the past few years have been to widen the net that brands use to catch leads and convert them. Headlines can sometimes be misleading, 
6,100 stores closing sounds catastrophic. But digging into the metrics on the state of retail produces a very different analysis of that segment of the economy. One of the keys to understanding the impact of change is to recognize that what might sometimes appear to be bad overall may in fact be a natural progression of development that secretly camouflages something good. And until next time, this is Robert Ian with ConquerChange.com. Thanks, Chris. Okay, Robert, thanks for another excellent installment. Well, that wraps up this week's GoldSeek.com radio episode. For two new big guests, be sure to check out next week's show. Until we talk to you again, have a great week. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice.